Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Spartacus. After traveling to ancient Greece, Babylon, India, and China, we turn our attention now to Rome and the Middle East for the next several episodes, as we'll look at the Roman Republic, Caesar and Cleopatra, followed by Jesus, and then back to Marcus Aurelius. There's a lot to talk about with the film Spartacus from 1960. The history of Rome, the institution of slavery, plus the Hollywood blacklist, Stanley Kubrick and Kirk Douglas, who's still alive at the age of 101. He was born just three months after the release of Intolerance at the end of 1916. Let's follow our usual pattern of discussing the story in the film, then what we know of the true story, and finally notes on the film itself before transitioning into next week. I don't plan on sparing many details, so if you haven't seen Spartacus before, do yourself a favor and check it out as soon as possible. I'll leave it to your discretion if spoilers are a concern for a 57-year-old movie about a 2,000-year-old story. The opening voiceover says how in the last century BCE, Rome sat at the center of the civilized world. We're introduced to Spartacus, who we're told was born a slave in Thrace. Uh, Thrace was in southeast Europe, the Greece-Bulgaria-Turkey area. Its southern coast was basically the Sea of Marmara that I mentioned in the Troy episode. Slavery, unfortunately, came right along with the development of agriculture. Why do the work if you can make someone who owes you money or people you conquered do it instead? Slaves were about one-third of the population of Italy at the time of Spartacus, similar to the American South in the mid-1800s. Roman slaves were almost exclusively European and did about everything from manual labor to household chores to accounting and practicing medicine. Even though they were considered completely the property of their masters, they could sometimes earn their own money and eventually buy their own freedom. The movie mentions Spartacus dreaming of the end of slavery 2,000 years before it would finally die out. The sad reality, however, is that there are more slaves today than at any point in human history. The formal institutions may be gone, but they've been replaced by human trafficking and coercive forced labor. We will tackle that topic later on, but I, I thought it needed mentioning here. Back to Spartacus. We see him as part of a band of slaves mining away at rocks in Libya under the supervision of Roman soldiers. It's unclear if this means modern Libya, as the Romans referred to Africa as a whole as Libya, but it's probably safe to say that this was in northern Africa, in or near modern Libya. Libya's neighbor Tunisia was home to Carthage, whom Rome had just conquered 35 years before the birth of Spartacus. Spartacus avoids a death sentence for attacking a guard when he is sold to a slave trader and taken to a gladiator school in Capua. It doesn't seem that the real Spartacus would have ever slaved away mining in Africa, and this was likely just the writer giving him the most backbreaking work he could. Capua is in Italy proper, just a two-hour drive south of Rome today. The slave trader who purchased Spartacus and who owns the gladiator school in Capua is Lentulus Batiatus, played by Peter Ustinov, who won Best Supporting Actor for his role. Batiatus is historically recognized as the owner of the school where Spartacus trained, though that's the extent of his fame. The movie makes good use of him uh, throughout, 
by uh, making him a self-serving opportunist, but with a good heart. Spartacus excels at the training, but doesn't hide his disdain for those overseeing him and his fellow slaves. As a reward for good behavior, slave women are delivered to the cells of some gladiators. Varinia, played by Gene Simmons, no, not the lead singer of Kiss, is brought to Spartacus. He analyzes her as though he's never seen a woman in his life, which may not be too far from the truth. But he's too honorable to just have his way with her, especially when he realizes they are being watched by the guards. The two, however, seem to fall for each other during their time at the school, trading longing glances and chaste touches while she serves the gladiators during mealtime. Unfortunately, Verenia was invented for the film. Spartacus does seem to have been married, but little is known about his wife other than the fact that he probably had one. The other friend Spartacus makes while at the gladiator school is his fellow slave Crixus, who is another historically documented slave and leader of the subsequent revolt, who is at the school with Spartacus. Things get tense when the school is visited by Marcus Licinius Crassus. Batiatus greets him as the first general of the Republic, father and defender of Rome. Crassus is probably the most historically significant figure in this story. Yes, Julius Caesar does play a small role, but for today's tale, Crassus, played by Laurence Olivier, is the Alpha Wolf. He may have been the second richest man in Roman history behind only Augustus Caesar, and we'll talk more about the historical Crassus a little later. For now, he was visiting the school with his wife Claudia and Marcus Glabris and his fiancée Helena. These three with Crassus are all fictional, though Glabris seems to be just a rebranding of the minor historical figure Gaius Claudius Glaber, to the point that I don't know why they changed his name. The women are determined to witness a fight to the death, which is what brought them to the school in the, in the first place. But Titus explains that that's not done at his school, but obviously everything has its price and Crassus agrees to pay up. The women want to choose their own gladiators and of course Spartacus and Crixus are among the four chosen, though they aren't matched against each other. Crixus kills his opponent as Spartacus watches, and then Spartacus is matched up against a tall black man using a trident and a net. Spartacus is actually defeated, but instead of delivering the killing blow, his opponent hurls his trident toward the four wealthy spectators and even attempts to climb up to them before being killed by a guard with a javelin and then stabbed in the neck by Crassus for good measure. Before the fight, Crassus had also bought Verenia from Batiatus, and the next day, Petitus himself heads off to deliver her to Rome as he's getting an uneasy feeling about the vibe at the school following the death of two gladiators. And sure enough, the main guard and trainer at the school mocks Spartacus as they watch Verenia being taken away. And this is the breaking point. Spartacus kills the guard by drowning him in a pot of stew, and the revolt is on. And thus begins what is known as the Third Servile War in 73 BCE. There have been two less successful revolts previously. Historically, it does seem to have started in the kitchen, with gladiators using kitchen utensils to fight their way out of the school, stealing wagons and weapons as they did so. In the film, they appear to kill all the guards and take over the school altogether, though they don't stay and begin their conquest of the surrounding countryside, freeing slaves and stealing gold as they go. The Senate debates how to deal with this threat. Leading the discussion is Gracchus, played by Charles Lawton, a political rival to Crassus and fictional character. He convinces the Senate to send Crassus's friend Glabris against the slaves while a young Julius Caesar remains in charge of the city. Meanwhile, Spartacus continues to recruit more and more to his side and is convincing them to become a true army, not just a roaming band of thugs. They set up camp at Mount Vesuvius, a great strategic uh, location, 
And on their way, Varinia is with one of the groups of slaves that joins them. She had escaped from Batiatus on their way to Rome. And it's worth noting here that Crixus, who they've made Spartacus's friend, was likely more of an ally of necessity. The slaves were rather divided into cliques based on the languages they spoke and where they were from. Crixus was from Gaul, roughly modern France and Belgium, and his people followed him. They were loosely teamed up with Spartacus as they had a common goal. Tony Curtis is introduced as a slave Antonidas. There's a scene of him giving Crassus a bath and Crassus asking him if he likes oysters and or snails. I had always thought it was odd, but this was the first time I picked up on the metaphor. He's basically telling Antoninus that he's bisexual and hoping to seduce him. When his back is turned, Antoninus bolts and winds up in Spartacus's band. And at times, it almost seems like Antoninus is a disposable character as they spend a fair amount of time on him and he doesn't really advance the plot. But he does serve as a great foil for Spartacus. He represents knowledge and art and beauty and everything Spartacus admits to Varinia that he knows far too little about. Spartacus makes a deal with a band of pirates to buy ships and sail away from Italy. The pirate says they'll be ready in seven months. And at the same time, the Roman army under Glabris is camping near Vesuvius preparing to attack. Spartacus launches a surprise raid against the camp and slaughters them. And this is fairly close to the truth. In fact, reality may have been more impressive. Spartacus had his forces repel down a steeper part of Vesuvius on rope and sneak around to the back of the Roman camp to attack them from behind. The historic record of Glaber, again on whom Glabris is based, ends after this battle. In the movie, he is captured and sent to Rome with the message from Spartacus that all they want is to be left alone and to leave Italy. As the slaves travel east to their promised ships, the Romans plan to meet them at Metapontum. There's some political shenanigans going on between Gracchus, Caesar, and Crassus, but ultimately Crassus is named First Council of Rome and given full authority to do what must be done to stop Spartacus. He bribes the pirates to abandon Spartacus so they have no ships. Meanwhile, the two large Roman legions that had been fighting in Spain and Anatolia are returning to Italy to help quell the slave rebellion. Spartacus realizes Crassus' plan is to force him to march on Rome itself and face Crassus. Before the final battle, Spartacus mentions they've beaten every army sent against them time after time. In the film, we've only seen the one at Vesuvius, but in reality, he is right. They uncannily just kept beating the Romans in battle, and I'll get more into the details there after I finish recapping the movie. The final battle scene is pretty remarkable. They filmed it in the plains outside Madrid in Spain with 8,000 Spanish soldiers serving as the Roman army. Spartacus's force makes an impressive showing, but as the other Roman forces arrive, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. Grixus is killed in battle, and the rest of our heroes are captured, with Antoninus and Spartacus chained right together. And all the slaves are told that if they, if they only identify Spartacus, whether he's alive or dead, their lives will be spared. Spartacus moves to give himself up, but in one of the most iconic scenes in all of cinema, Antoninus beats him to it and says, I'm Spartacus. And this is repeated countless times over and over with slave after slave of all ages and sizes claiming to be Spartacus, which dooms them all to death. Varinia is found by Crassus uh, with her and Spartacus's newborn baby. He has her taken to his own private quarters, but where she is later rescued by Batiatus at the instruction of Gracchus. Crassus has ordered that all the slaves captured in battle be crucified along the road leading to Rome. This is exactly what happened in real life, with 6,000 slaves crucified along the Appian Way, left up for months until they completely disintegrated. 
Rome didn't do things by half measure. Recognizing them after the fact, Crassus had set Antoninus and Spartacus aside for last, and they were to fight to the death for the amusement of Rome. But in his frustration, after talking to Verinia, Crassus forces the fight at night for his own satisfaction. The loser dies, the winner gets crucified. So in a heartbreaking battle, both Antoninus and Spartacus truly try to kill each other to spare the other the pain of crucifixion. Antoninus is no match, and Spartacus is crucified. Finally, as Verinia and Batiatis are leaving the city, they see Spartacus on the cross just outside the city, and Verinia shows him his son for the first time and tells Spartacus that he is free. So again, a powerful, powerful movie that, while not without its flaws, is definitely a must-see. Let's look at some of the key differences between the film and what history tells us. First, Spartacus wasn't born into slavery. From what I gather between Wikipedia and a History Channel documentary, Spartacus was born in Thrace, where he fought against the Romans and then was hired by them as a mercenary, uh, later committing some offense, possibly desertion. They got him arrested and sold into slavery as a gladiator. The result was the same as the movie with him at Batiatis' school in Capua. After the initial conflict near Vesuvius, history is actually far more interesting than the movie. It was just too much to squeeze into a film that's already more than three hours long. After their embarrassing defeat of Vesuvius, the Romans sent a force twice as big that now knew that the slaves were a a real threat. Well, Spartacus beat them too and moved his uh, makeshift army community of now around 70,000 to Metapontum for the winter. Here they trained and made weapons. Spartacus valued bronze and iron over gold and silver, because he can make them into weapons. There was no plan at this time to sail away from Italy. Instead, the plan was to actually march north across the whole of Italy and cross the Alps, uh, escaping Rome and allowing everyone to return to their original homes. Well, Crixus's faction grew overzealous and lost on their own to the Romans, and Crixus was killed. But then Spartacus swooped in and defeated those Romans without the aid of Crixus's followers. The Romans then blocked off their path to the Alps, forcing what should have been the final conflict. The rebels faced 10,000 battle-hardened Roman soldiers, and Spartacus wins again. But instead of crossing the Alps, his men decide they like beating Romans and turn back south. Basically, they chose the potential for glory and plunder over lives of peaceful poverty. This is when Crassus gets called into action. He wasn't really a military guy, he was just really rich and seeking glory. Spartacus knew better than to attack the city of Rome itself. Crassus met them in the open field, but Spartacus once more turned them back. To send home the message of fear and discipline, Crassus decimated his troop. I should explain here what decimation actually means. We use it today to describe a lopsided defeat, often in sports. Oh man, we decimated them on Friday night. And I actually love this little bit of etymology. The ancient calendar had just 10 months, and the last four, 7, 8, 9, 10, were September, October, November, December. September. Sept is seven in French. October we know as eight in English through octagon and octopus. November, nine, neuf, nueve. And December, dec, ten. A decade is ten years. A dime is ten cents. And decimate means to kill one in ten. Crassus killed a tenth of his men so that in the future, the survivors would fear him and not run from Spartacus and his slave army. Though they had been winning this whole time, Spartacus was running out of options. They went south into the toe of Italy, and here is where they hoped to hire pirate ships and sail to Sicily. The pirates took their money, but betrayed them and gave them no ships. Crassus fortified them off, hoping to starve them out. 
Spartacus's initial attack against this fortification is repelled, and in a display of defiance, he crucified a Roman prisoner, a form of punishment typically reserved for slaves, and therefore a big insult to the Romans. This is when the two Roman forces abroad returned to Italy. Pompey, aka Pompey the Great, returned from fighting in Spain, and Lucullus returned from fighting the kingdom of Pontus in Asia Minor. Spartacus offered to surrender to Crassus in exchange for the lives of his men, but Crassus refused to negotiate. Spartacus did score one last victory, however. In the middle of the night, they were able to pierce through the Roman fortification and break free, but defeat was inevitable at this point. They were surrounded by three Roman forces, they were overrun, and Spartacus was killed in battle, though his body was never recovered. Spartacus is just an amazing figure to think about. From obscurity as a gladiator slave, he spent just under two years thwarting one of the world's greatest military powers in their own front yard, and we're still talking about him more than 2,000 years later. Crassus, along with Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar, formed what historians call the First Triumvirate, an unofficial political alliance that allowed these three to advance their own ambitions and agendas, challenging the will of the Senate as a whole. Caesar was the young, charismatic politician, Pompey was the great general, and Crassus was the richest man in Rome. Crassus made much of his fortune in real estate. He would buy up cheap properties that were either damaged or confiscated from political enemies of the ruling elites. While the movie played up the idea of the Senate naming Crassus first consul and giving him near dictatorial powers, reality was nothing as, as drastic. The Republic always had two elected consuls serving uh, one-year terms, and after the defeat of Spartacus, Crassus and Pompey both served as consul for the same year of 70 BCE, and again in 55 BCE. The Triumvirate, while helping each other, were also always trying to outdo each other. In 53 BCE, Crassus's hubris got the best of him. He had been given control of Syria and launched a campaign from there against Parthia in roughly modern Iraq and Iran, so where our Babylonians and Persians were previously. After a botched negotiation following a botched battle, Crassus was killed and beheaded. The movie Spartacus was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning, winning four for supporting actor, cinematography, art and set decoration, and costume design. It was conspicuously, however, not even nominated for Best Picture, Director, or Screenplay. The answer likely lies with the Hollywood Blacklist. Artists in the 50s and early 60s believed to have ties or sympathy for the Communist Party were considered unhirable. Many writers continued working under assumed names. Kirk Douglas helped to break this practice and ultimately end the blacklist by openly acknowledging Dalton Trumbo as the screenwriter on Spartacus, the same Trumbo played by Brian Cranston in the 2015 movie Trumbo. Hollywood voters might have shied away from awarding much beyond the technical aspects of the film, I imagine Douglas might have stood a better chance at an acting nomination as well had he been less of an advocate for Trumbo. Director Stanley Kubrick wasn't the biggest fan of the movie himself. He had worked with Douglas previously on Paz of Glory and was a last-second replacement on the film. Kubrick was used to having complete creative control and didn't like how much his hands were tied here. When you watch his other films, Spartacus does stand out as being fairly standard Hollywood fare. Spartacus is available to rent on Amazon and iTunes. Along with many books about Spartacus, the network Stars also produced a television series about him. A few other idiosyncratic notes. When Spartacus captures Glabrus after the Battle of Vesuvius, he takes the baton Glabrus carries as the symbol of Roman authority and breaks it. I've seen these before, but as a track coach, this time through I got really excited. 
I'm going to have to do some more research to verify this, but it seems to me there's a definite connection here from ancient tradition to modern track and field. The baton isn't just a thing you pass to prove an unbroken connection from runner to runner. The baton is the symbol of your team or school. Each runner holds it for their leg of the journey as the momentary official representative of their team. I know, I'm a nerd. The movie does a good job with other little details, mentioning specific places like Gaul, the currency Sesterces, and the acronym SPQR. Once you know about this, you'll notice it in basically every movie about ancient Rome. It stands for Senatus Populus Romanus, meaning the Roman Senate and people. The first picture I took when I visited Rome in 2010 was of a manhole cover with SPQR on it. Maximus has it tattooed on his arm in Gladiator. And I actually have a similar SPES species tattoo in the same spot, which is Latin for hope. Elsewhere in the world at this time, the Han Dynasty ruled China. Paper was first developed there under their reign. And Herod the Great was born. He later built the great fortress at Masada in Israel. We'll dig deeper into some other areas next week. Roman history can easily be split into two large chunks, the Democratic Roman Republic and the Despotic Roman Empire. The transition from one to the other centers squarely on the rise and fall of Julius Caesar. So join me next week as we discuss how it all goes down in the midst of a love triangle between Caesar, Mark Antony, and Cleopatra. 